Well, if this is your first time joining us, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors of the church. And this morning, we are in our second to last installment of our series, Working Through First Peter. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, not a problem. There's probably one right under your chair, the chair of someone next to you. Uh, in those Bibles under your chairs, First Peter chapter 4 is on page 1016. 1016. So next Sunday, we will finish up the First Peter series. My man Tom Matthew will be preaching, so that's reason enough to come back early from Thanksgiving uh, and enjoy the word as, as he brings it. And then we'll be into our Advent series. It's like my favorite time of the year, so I hope you'll be able to join us for that. But as we're drawing First Peter to a close, I've been reflecting a little bit on why is it that First Peter seems to speak so deeply to us. Why is it? What is it about First Peter? And as I've thought about it, I've realized the reason First Peter speaks so deeply to us is because the letter deals with the raw realities of life without sugarcoating it. Just deals with the raw realities of life, especially the reality of suffering. It's been a theme all throughout the letter. And rather than Peter denying that suffering is coming or that suffering is painful, he actually goes to great lengths, you've probably noticed, to remind, especially those who follow Jesus, that suffering is going to be an inevitable part of life because we follow a savior and king who suffered. It's gonna be an inevitable part of life. And so last week, Peter looked at suffering through a particular angle, and it was through the angle of preparation. See, last week, Peter was answering the question, how do we prepare now for inevitable future suffering? How do we prepare now for inevitable future suffering? Uh, but today, Peter's gonna address suffering one last time from a little bit different angle. He's gonna answer the next logical question, which is, how do I respond if inevitable future suffering has actually become my present reality? Not how do I prepare for future suffering, but how do I respond when sufferings actually come upon me? When what is future inevitability becomes present reality? How do we respond? Let's read together 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised. Let me just stop for a moment. I will not do a running commentary on this entire passage, but I do just want to stop and, and point out that he calls them beloved right from the beginning. It's a passage on suffering. So, one of the most heinous things that suffering can make you do is make you believe that God doesn't love you. And so he just starts right from the beginning. Beloved, you know, those who have been called into a relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, adopted as God's children, his son or daughter through the true son, Jesus Christ. So he just calls him beloved right from the beginning. Okay, I mean, we're gonna have to move on, but that's, that's all right, let's, let's, get, let's get going. You're like, <laughs> I didn't stop us, dude, but fine. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But 
let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. What does that mean? We'll get into that in a moment. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's read that last verse one more time because it contains for us the answer to our question, you know, what, what do we do when the inevitable future becomes the present reality? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How do you respond when the possibility that your marriage is going to contain trials actually becomes the present reality and it contains trials? How do you respond when instead of, oh, it's possible that my career will go awry, all of a sudden you're actually in the midst of it and it's going in a direction you never hoped? How do you respond when your relationships, rather than being, oh, it's possible that relationships will be complicated, no, they're complicated right here, right now. How do you respond? Well, the big idea of this passage and the answer that Peter gives us in verse 19 is this. Trust God and do good. Trust God and do good when you suffer. Trust God and do good. Now, you may be wondering, okay, that's, that's very nice, so sounds good, but how? How in the world do I actually do that? Like in the midst of facing all the things you just listed and more. How? How do I actually trust God and do good in the midst of my trials? And believe me, I know that many of you, uh, trials are not a future possibility or inevitability. They're a present reality. You're facing things today that like you woke up with that pit in your stomach and it's just not going away. How? Do you actually trust God and do good in the midst of that? Well, Peter's really gonna give us three very tangible and particular ways to trust God and do good. He's gonna put some teeth on what it looks like to trust God now in the midst of not future inevitability but present reality. And the three are this, three ways to that we can actually trust God and do good in the midst of our trials. First, trust God's purpose. Second, trust God's blessing. And then third, trust God's care. Trust his purpose, his blessing, and his care. Okay, let's, let's start with trust God's purpose. Notice the very first thing Peter says about trials in this passage. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when they come upon you. This is a really important reality for us at City Light to own because the vast majority of you are very young. 
And there's something that happens when very young people like us suffer. And when I say young, I'm like, if you're under 40, you're young, okay? I know some of you are like, I'm 41 and now hate you. No, but <clears throat> you're young. And one of the things that comes with being young is naivety, okay? It's just part of reality of life. And so what happens when those of us who are young, and I'm in that category, good night, you think I'm over 40? I'm in that category. What happens when we suffer is that it shocks us. It's not supposed to be this way. I can't believe this is happening. This is so surprising. I thought it was going to go perfectly. And Peter, right from the beginning, says, don't be so surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. But there's a reason he can say that. There's a reason he can say, don't be surprised. It's because he knows God's purpose for our suffering. And the purpose for our suffering is laid out right there in verse 12. Notice what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, look at this, when it comes upon you to test you. To test you. This word test means to, to purify, to refine, like in a fire. You know, you put precious metals in a fire and it burns away all that's impure, all that doesn't belong. See, what Peter's getting at is this. In the midst of trials, you can trust God and do good first by trusting that God's purpose in your trial is to refine you, is to refine you. Like fire burning away impurities. What you're dealing with, you, right here, right now, in that situation that you don't understand, let me just encourage you, don't go searching for all the reasons. This is where so many of us get stuck. I wanna discover every reason for my trial. Notice that the Bible gives very little airtime to the reason for your suffering and a ton to the purpose of it. You're never gonna figure out all the reasons why your trials have come upon you. You're complicated and your life is complicated. But what Peter is saying is trusting God in the midst of your trials means that you trust his purpose. That his purpose is to refine you like a precious stone in fire. That you would look more like Jesus, be more dependent and steadfast. See, that's what Peter is getting at in this very confusing verse, verse 17. Notice what he, what he says. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Well, Peter here is alluding to a passage in Malachi chapter 3, all of your favorite devotional book. And in Malachi chapter 3, uh, the prophet is speaking about judgment that's coming to God's people, but it's not the kind of judgment you're thinking. Malachi in chapter 3 talks about judgment of God's people, but it's not a judgment of condemnation but transformation. It's a judgment meant to refine them. Let, let me read it to you. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 1, it should be up behind us, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Now look at this. For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purify and, and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you truly believe that the righteous one, Jesus Christ, died for you and me, the unrighteous, to bring us to God, and that therefore God is unequivocally for you, that there's nothing you can ever do to make him love you any more or less because his love for you is dependent not on you but on Christ. If you really believe that, then you can trust God's purpose in your suffering because you can trust that his suffering is not punitive. See, God's suffering, you can trust, is not punishment because it's passed to you through Christ. Christ has taken your punishment. He has taken your condemnation. He's taken all the wrath that you and I deserve because of our sin and he's put it upon Christ. And so whenever suffering comes to us, it comes not as judgment to condemn, but grace to refine. Not judgment to condemn, but grace to refine. And so what Peter says right from the beginning is if you're right now in the midst of suffering, please don't go searching for all the reasons. Instead, trust God's purpose. That his purpose in your suffering is to refine you, not to condemn you. It's not punitive because Jesus has been punished. And so now you're free. You're free because Jesus has been punished for your sin to ask this very hard question when you face trials. God, what are you refining? God, what is it that you're burning away? How are you seeking to make me both dependent and steadfast? Can you imagine what your life would be like if that's how you responded when the inevitable future trials become your present reality? Instead of freaking out and flipping out, blame shifting and looking for all the reasons that you're never gonna figure out in this body and life. You said, God, I trust your purpose. Because of the cross of Christ, I can trust that you're for me. And therefore, I have the courage to ask you, what are you trying to burn away? Whatever you're doing, I want to follow you. I'd rather be refined in fire than comfortable and ungodly. God is just so much more concerned with your holiness than your comfort. So first and foremost, Peter says, trust God's purpose. Second way that we can trust God and do good, first by trusting his purpose, second is by trusting God's blessing. Trust God's blessing. I want to read verses 13 to 16 again. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Trusting God and doing good, secondly, means you trust God's blessing. You see, 
what Peter is saying here is he, he's, he's getting a little more specific. See, at first he talked about how do we respond to suffering in general, but now he's speaking about how we respond when we suffer because or in light of the reality that we're following Jesus. And he says this, if you're suffering on account of your allegiance to Jesus, then rejoice because you're blessed. He's saying it's a blessing you can trust because Jesus who suffered for you has counted you worthy to suffer on his account. That's an amazing blessing and privilege. Peter actually knew quite a bit of this privilege um, because he suffered a whole lot on account of following Jesus. One scene in Acts chapter five, uh, Peter's been arrested by, along with some of the other apostles by the religious leaders of the day and Acts five describes the scene this way. And when they had called in the apostles, they being the religious leaders, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get beat for something, it's like I'm moving. We're, we're done here. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. Sure, just don't beat me anymore. Notice their response. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They trusted God's blessing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. When you suffer because of your allegiance to Jesus, It's a display that God's glory, his wondrous presence, his Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, that you belong to him, and that he's called you to a privilege. Now, I find this so encouraging, just as an aside, I find these verses so encouraging in light of one of the things we've been talking about all fall. If you've been around City Light at all this fall, one of the things we've been talking about constantly is that we want to uh, see at City Light a, a culture of evangelism spring up among us. We, we, wanna have, we want our church to be a missional culture. Now, what does that mean? What it essentially means is we want to follow the Apostle Paul's example in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, where he says that he loved the Thessalonians so much that he was delighted to share with them not only the gospel of God, but his life as well. And so what we want is a culture, a people. Here at City Light, we want to be a people where everyone who follows Jesus says, I'm delighted to share both the gospel and my life with at least three people who don't yet know and love Jesus. That's what we believe a, a missional culture is, where everyone here, because of God's overwhelming love for you in the gospel, say, I want to pray for, love, seek to introduce to my Christian community and speak the gospel to three people, at least three people, that don't yet know and love Jesus. But let me tell you, why do, now why is this so, these verses so encouraging for that? Because according to these verses, even if you suffer, even if it doesn't go well in your effort to pray, love, introduce, and speak, you're blessed. Even if you're cursed or God forbid you experience a awkward conversation, you're blessed. See, I'll, I'll level with you. I know it's risky to live a missional life, to share both the gospel and your life as well. It's risky. It could get slightly awkward. You could be misunderstood. Someone might speak evil against you behind your back. 
(laughs) Now, it's worth the risk. Someone could also come to love Jesus. It's worth the risk. But let these verses encourage you that when you suffer, especially suffer as a follower of Jesus, because of your allegiance to him, you're blessed. You can rejoice because God's glory rests upon you. Now, before we move to the final way that we trust God, I think it's important to see that Peter has put a little aside in here. I think it's in verse 15 where he says, he's been talking about how to respond if you're suffering for your allegiance to Jesus, and then he he throws this in there. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Why does he put that in there? Because there's a type of suffering you may be experiencing right now that is not a blessing. There's a type of suffering you may be experiencing right now that you should not rejoice in. And it's the type of suffering that flows from you sinning or me sinning. You see, let me give you some examples of what the heck I'm getting at. If you're a student, which many of you in this service are, and you're suffering, like failing a class, but you're suffering on account of the reality that you've kind of given up on the whole idea of studying, Peter is not saying, rejoice, God's blessing you. Rejoice in that suffering. No, no, he, he, he's not saying that. He, he's saying repent and start studying for goodness sake. You're, you're paying for this or you're going to one day. They, you can't defer those loans forever, by the way. That's just a little life advice. But, um, <laughs> or if you're like, I'm suffering in the midst of marital challenges right now because I am so selfish. Because I'm either passive aggressive or a bully. Peter's not saying, rejoice, rejoice, that suffering is a blessing. No, Peter's saying, repent, repent. If you're suffering because of your allegiance to Jesus, rejoice. If you're suffering because you're sinning in some way, like you're getting, please don't pull out the, like, I'm being persecuted for Jesus card if you're getting passed over at work for promotions just because you do shoddy work. No, instead, repent and start doing some good work. But here's the great news. We know and none of us suffers totally impurely. In this body and life, none of us suffers, and it's not at all in any way our fault all the time. But our hope is in Jesus. He's the one who suffered for us. He's the only one who suffered perfectly well. He suffered because of his obedience to the Father, not despite it. He, he suffered for us in total love. And so you can look to him, and now you're free. If you're suffering because you're sinning, now you're free to admit it. The, the cross has already outed you as a sinner. So now you can just admit it. You can say, yes, actually in this particular area, I'm suffering because I'm just doing bad work, or I'm being lazy, or because I'm being a jerk, or I'm being selfish. And because at the cross, you've already been outed as a selfish jerk, you can praise Jesus for his grace and repent. You're free to repent. So, trusting God and doing good means first, trusting God's purpose. Secondly, trusting his blessing. It's a blessing to suffer for the name. And if you're suffering for some other reason, you're free to repent. That's, some of the, that's the part of the grace of the gospel. And then finally, Peter says, to trust God and do good 
in the midst of suffering means you trust God's care. Means you trust God's care. To read verse 19 one more time. Verse 19 is really the summary of this entire passage. It says, let there, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The way you trust God and do good finally is by trusting God's care. Trusting God's care. Now, I've recently been uh, reading a book on spiritual depression by a guy named Ed Welch. A phenomenal book. I think it's just called Depression. And he, in the book, talks about depression or spiritual depression as really just a form of suffering. Depression is a form of suffering. And so what he says in the book is that no matter what suffering you're facing, whether it's spiritual depression or something totally different, somewhere in between, this is one of the key insights of the book. I love it. He says, whenever you're suffering, whatever happens to be large or small, you essentially have one choice. One choice that you have to make every time. And to not choose, by the way, is to choose. And he says the choice is this. Will you cry to the Lord or not? Sounds simple, right? Will you cry to the Lord or not? Now what Welch says that I think is so helpful is crying is not a choice. He says you will cry. If you're suffering, you will cry. That's not the question. The question is, in what direction will you cry? See, Hosea 7.14 gives us uh, this biblical paradigm, this choice. This is the Lord speaking. Let me read it to you. The Lord says, they do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. No matter what you're facing right now, large or small, no matter what you're facing. Trusting God's care means you have a choice. Cry to the Lord from your heart or wail upon your bed. And if you decide not to choose, you're just wailing upon your bed. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to wail upon your bed? What Welch is getting at and what Hosea is getting at here is that you will cry. And wailing upon your bed is one of your options. Now, depending on your circumstance or your personality, wailing upon your bed can look wildly different. Okay, so if you're a type A individual like me, wailing upon your bed will likely look something like there's this little uh, internal emotional storm kind of always going on below the surface that I just choose to pretend isn't going on. And I'm just going to keep smacking my head into this brick wall until it breaks, pretending like it doesn't hurt. But if you have a different personality, wailing upon your bed may just look like you flee to a particular pet sin of yours that always overpromises comfort and then underdelivers on it. Or maybe, given your personality, you run to isolation. 
That's a form of wailing upon your bed. This crazy idea that the best thing for you in the midst of suffering is to get some time alone. Yeah, just you, alone with those thoughts, all that bad news you're telling yourself. Great idea. Wailing upon your bed. I don't know what it looks like for you. But what Hosea is saying is that you always have a choice. Entrusting yourself to God's care, trusting God's care, means that you can't choose whether you cry or not. You're gonna wail. It means you wail in the right direction. It means that when suffering comes upon you, you actually verbally entrust yourself to the God of all comfort. It means that instead of telling, just believing all those lies about God that your trials tend to push upon you, right? God's not good. He's holding out on me. I need to look elsewhere. God's not great. I need to get in control. God's not glorious, so now I'm terrified of everyone. And on and on it goes, the lies we believe. Entrusting yourself to a faithful creator means that instead of wailing upon your bed, spiraling inward, pretending it's not there, instead, you cry to the Lord. You entrust yourself to his care. You say, God, can you imagine if this is how you responded? God, in light of this trial, I am actually tempted to believe you are not good. And so I need to look elsewhere. Help me to believe that since you gave your son for me, you will not withhold from me anything that is ultimately for my good. Imagine if that's the way you responded. That's what it means to entrust yourself to God's care. It's to wail to him rather than on your bed. I mean, I'll just tell you honestly, I'll probably be a recovering, like, bed wailer for the rest of my life. I mean, those of you that know me, you know I'm an incredibly simple person and am repelled by complexity. Like, when I sinfully fantasize, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in this room that's a real sinner, but uh, when I sinfully fantasize about being in control of my life, uh, I'll tell you what it looks like. This is a little embarrassing to say. When I sinfully fantasize about what my life would look like if I were in total control, I picture a little mountain town where none of you can bother me. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's not, it's not like that. Let, let, let me tell you the truth. I love you guys. And it, it is truly a privilege. I'm talking about my sinfulness here. Picture myself in a little mountain town where I get to go trail running in the mountains every single day and I have zero responsibilities. Not a one. And instead of that, in God's purpose that I trust, you know, from, ver from uh, point one, in God's purpose, he's called me to live in a very complex city. In his purpose that I trust, instead of what I fantasized about when I was in uh, graduate school, I, I always, when I was in graduate school, I just wanted to be a professor because I was attracted to the simple lifestyle. Instead, he's called me to start and now lead a very complex organization that seems to get more complex by the day. And instead of having no responsibilities, I live in the beautiful relational web known as marriage and family. And as a result of actually being an adult um, and not just shirking every responsibility, I've experienced some trials. 
And my temptation is always just to wail upon my bed, which again for me looks like there is an emotional storm going on below the surface, and if I cannot acknowledge it, then we can just keep plowing forward. And of course it shoots out in sinful ways, mostly at my wife, you know, when you're close, you get the sin. But it's actually been in this series working through 1 Peter that God has drawn me to this reality that you can't pretend anymore. You can't pretend that you're not wailing. You are wailing. The question is in what direction? Imagine if you so trusted God's purpose and his blessing that you, when the fiery trial comes upon you, instead of being shocked, instead of running to comforts that will not comfort you, like isolation or sin, that only make things worse, you actually wailed to God and told him, this is what's going on, this is what I'm experiencing, this is what's so devastating. And by the way, this is not the same as that crazy pop Christian idea that it's just good to get angry at God sometimes. No, it's not, for goodness sake. It's never appropriate to get angry at God. He's never done anything wrong. But it is not wrong to express your anger and your frustration to God honestly in prayer. That's just wailing in the right direction. And what I've learned in the last couple months is that when you actually confess to God the lies you're believing about him, compare those to the truth of the gospel and talk to God about the difference, like this is what I'm really believing, but this is what's really true, help me to believe and act out of what's true. I'm actually feeling so much more free to now entrust myself to other people like my wife and my Christian community and be far more real with them. And you see, that's part of entrusting yourself to a faithful creator is entrusting yourself to brothers and sisters in Christ who love you. It's part of it. That's why if you're going to trust God in the midst of suffering, you're gonna actually really need to pursue community rather than running from it. Pursue genuine fellowship rather than skipping out on it. Now, trust God do good by trusting his purpose, trusting his blessing, and because of those, entrusting yourself to his care. Now, with my last one minute that I have with you, we'll see if I can pull this off. I want to tell you the, very, the most important thing I think I could ever tell you about suffering and trusting God in the midst of suffering. Here it is. The only way you will ever be able to trust God and do good in the midst of your suffering is if you arm yourself with the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? The only way that you can trust God and do good in the midst of your suffering is if you unequivocally believe that that, that suffering is not punishment. That that suffering has come to you through Christ who's already been punished on your behalf. And therefore the suffering you experience is not meant to punish you and condemn you but to refine you. See, only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you deserved to die and was resurrected on your behalf, only the gospel can assure you that God is for you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And if you believe that, if you truly believe that God is for you, then you can believe that even in your suffering, though whoever out there intends it for evil, that he intends it for good. The cross is proof 
See, on the flip side, here's a terrifying reality. If you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then the suffering you experience in this life is actually just a foretaste of the eternal suffering that we all deserve apart from the forgiveness of sins that Christ alone offers. It's just a foretaste of the eternal suffering. But the good news of the gospel flips it on its head. See, apart from Christ, your current suffering is light compared to the eternal judgment that awaits. It's a terrifying reality. But the gospel flip side is that if you're in Christ, he's been condemned on your behalf, therefore there's no condemnation for you. And then you can trust that your current suffering is light compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits you. Have you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, the eternal life that he offers? If so, you're free. You're free from the condemnation of sin and now you can trust that in all your suffering that God is in it, God is good. You can trust him and do good. You can trust his purpose. You can trust his blessing. And you can trust his care. Now, because all of us struggle to believe that, as we respond, we're gonna partake in communion together. Jesus has told us that communion is a meal of remembrance. The bread symbolizing Jesus' body broken for us, the wine or juice symbolizing his blood shed for us. And as often as we gather together and anytime during the next three songs, you tear off a piece of bread, dip in the cup and eat it, you remember Jesus' death until he returns. See, what you're remembering is that he was condemned. So if your hope is in him, you never will be. He went into the tomb so that the tomb can never hold you. Come to the communion table if you're a follower of Jesus and remember what Jesus has done to assure you that your suffering right now is not punishment meant to condemn you, but grace meant to refine you. Let's respond. We'll respond in taking communion, singing songs of praise, and if you are struggling to believe the hope of the gospel in the midst of your suffering, please come to the back. We would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that in Christ you are for us, that you love us, and there's no condemnation for us, and that you've brought trials to refine us and not to condemn us. Thank you for that beautiful gospel reality. Help us to believe it and to celebrate it now. And help us to be a people that when we suffer, we trust you and do good. In Jesus' name, amen.